Blog Talk Radio. gentlemen, and welcome to the 604th edition of the Feuerstein's Fire American Soccer Show. I'm your host, Daniel Feuerstein. I'll give you an American perspective. Our clubs leaves players and coaches and our fabulous moments in American soccer. Get your daily reading from me over at beyondthe90.substack.com and, of course, part of Red Bull News Network, but as always, this show is dedicated to the American game. And ladies and gentlemen, what an amazing show we have for you tonight. But before we even get to that show, ladies and gentlemen, you know, I knew this was going to happen. I knew the problems that were going to start up once that this League's Cup, and the expansion of the MLS Cup playoffs was going to come into play here. And, you know, what really bothers me, what really, really bothers me is that Once again, Major League Soccer and Commissioner Don Garber is not thinking about the overall health of the players. Not thinking about giving them the proper rest that they need playing not just an MLS regular season game, Some of these teams that are playing in CONCACAF Champions Cup games, Open Cup games when we get to the third round now, and of course when we go all the way to the playoffs, and not taking the proper break when we get to the international breaks are designated by FIFA. And, (laughs) I, I, I mean... Because I understand the competition is fierce. I understand it's also to, you know, make the money to make MLS to what it should be. And what it is, is a league that is meant to help the American players on the first division level of American soccer. The United Soccer Leagues handles the second division with championship, the third division with League One, obviously the amateur level. Uh, and League Two, we have other Division Three leagues like NISA currently, as well as MLS's Next Pro. And, you know, once again, we we all know the typical arguments. But once again, the problems are, is the continued mental and physical health of our players. And it's not just the players that are getting exhausted now from all of this. 
the mental exhaustion, excuse me, the mental exhaustion of the head coaches for these MLS clubs. What about the game day staff of every home stadium for all these MLS teams? And it's not just preparing the fields, preparing the stadiums, make sure it's pristine before, making sure it's pristine during and after. But of course, let's not forget the people who come in. I mean, you know, the selling of the merchandise, probably selling of the food that are going on, but not to not forget the people who are attending and maintaining the luxury boxes in all these stadiums. You know, what about their mental health? I understand what Don Garber's trying to do. I do understand the reasons that he thinks that obviously, obviously, what they are trying to do to make this sport successful. But at the same time, the continued, how shall I say it, the unhealthy, um, I'm trying to say a word that I don't want to come across too strongly, but I guess we can go with the obsession of having Riga MX teams these contests just to fill the pockets of MLS, some United Marketing, and Liga MX. Once again, I continue to say this. Don Garber needs to not involve League Matters along with the U.S. Soccer Federation Matters and CONCACAF matters. Because once again, if he is trying to wear three separate hats, all for the sake of trying to make Major League Soccer into the best thing since sliced bread, I don't think we're going to have a problem where it could lead to another, you know, uh, falling and uh, you know ending of another Division One league, but it's coming to the point where the quality of the league will be dipping extremely terribly, very badly, and then when will we get to the level in the domestic game of how we should be playing against our opponents, not just against ourselves. But when we do qualify for these international club tournaments, once again, League's Cup should never have been sanctioned by CONCACAF, but because they were scared and they were afraid of losing their ability to have Liga MX clubs and MLS clubs playing in their tournaments, well, we got to make it so that this truly counts and we will aim it towards lumping it in as extra spots to qualify for the Champions Cup. 
And that was wrong. Montagliani should have put his foot down and he should have told them and Don Garber, Don's a great idea, but I'm afraid we can't have it. We cannot have this. It is up to CONCACAF to do this. This is why when you have the National Hockey League, Major League Baseball, the NBA, when they have their players playing in international tournaments, they do it themselves. And I'm not talking about these youth tournaments or the world championship tournament that like the International Ice Hockey Federation does because it's basically a European body even though they represent the world governing body of hockey because the World Cup of Hockey or back then the Canada Cup is an NHL tournament to have international teams playing. The World Baseball Classic is truly under Major League Baseball. When you have the International Basketball Tournaments, it is under the Federation of International Basketball Association, FIBA. There is no world governing body for American football in the NFL. If they ever go back into Europe, well, guess what? That's under the NFL's rule because they can do so if they want to go back there again with, uh, with the World League of American Football, if they choose to go back there. This is what I'm trying to explain to you. Don Garber thinks because it, the NFL did all of this, the NHL does all this, and the NBA does all this, and Major League Baseball does this, that he can do this for MLS as well. No. That's why he's a part of the board of directors of U.S. soccer, so that he is legally able to make League's Cup important because he's a member of the board of directors of U.S. soccer. He should no longer be a part of the board of directors of U.S. soccer. He should step down, worry only about MLS, and that's it. And stop with the backhanded comments against the Open Cup. That is U.S. Soccer's tournament. They should be growing a backbone when it comes to that Open Cup tournament. Plain and simple, plain and simple, these situations should just stop going against what is the proper means and ways of making this sport relevant in this country. It's not just what one thing will do. There are multiple layers that need to be fixed and multiple layers that need to be hammered home to make sure that everything goes as smoothly as it should the normal way. Until we get there, it's just going to be the same old, same old, and that's fine. Because we all need to be patient, folks. I understand some want it now. The truth is, it's, we've got to have patience. And if we don't have patience, then everything could fall apart again. And I'm not saying I want that. I don't. I'm just trying to inform all of you of what the inevitable could be. Do I want that? Absolutely not. I want this sport to thrive and do very well, not just for our players, coaches, front offices, 
you the fans, and for us the media. We all want this sport to do well. But when there's something that we, lo- that we see that we don't like, we have to report it. And we have to inform people of it. Because it's not the right thing to do. Everything cannot be sunshines and rainbows. There's going to be some gloom. There's going to be some rain. I don't like it. You don't like it. I want everything positive. But if something happens and it looks like it's not or it should not be done, period, well, we have to say, listen, we think it's a bad idea. And now you're seeing Steve Terundolo, Steve Terundolo, head coach of LAFC, upset that, A, the roster size needs to be bigger. And, yes, we know that the salary cap in MLS will be expanded for next year. I don't know for how much. But it's going to get a little bit bigger so that because more teams want to spend on players. And as we are moving on to MLS 3.0, 4.0, the league is operating in a 1.0 system, and that needs to stop. That needs to stop because MLS needs to now move on. I'm sick and tired of the GAM and the TAM and the DP and the hard cap. The designated player, the discovery player, all these different rules of how to acquire players, all these different roster rules. It's time to graduate and play like the big boys play. You still want to have a salary cap? That's fine. I don't care. That's fine. But let's not have salary cap and single entity come in and just stagnate where we all know where this league can go. And if once the reins are off, we will be in a much better position because that is why I believe this league can move forward. I do believe that. Until then, we got to open it up. And it's got to be not only in a safe area, but in a better common sense area. And that is where we need to go. Until then, we're stuck where we are at the moment. But it's time to move forward and move this league forward. And that's all I can say about that situation. Great show for you tonight, ladies and gentlemen, as we get ready to talk about uh, tonight's show. Joining me is over in the Bay Area from our area sports net uh, covering the San Jose Earthquakes in the Bay Area. Fabian Rankle joining me tonight. Fabian, good evening, and how are you? Hey, thanks for having me on again. And to be honest, yeah, I mean, what you were talking about earlier, it's, it's tough, but we're about to get into it. But a, a club like the Quakes, right, like if you take everything away, what's keeping them accountable, you know? So I would love to get into that, but I'm excited to be on the show, and thank you again. Well, absolutely. We'll definitely talk about that another time. Fabian, the owner of the San Jose Earthquakes is also the owner of the Oakland Athletics of Major League Baseball, and we already know the situation he's having uh, with both the city of Oakland and, of course, trying to move them to the city of Las Vegas. But now, eight years of PayPal Park, and he's complaining about how the earthquake stadium uh, situation is not as good or as equal to what's happened in St. Louis, in Austin, and maybe even Orlando. And I, I don't understand why he's having a complaint. Yeah, um, you know what? This is I'm a little torn on this topic because 
I can see what he's talking about because I travel to a lot of other stadiums in the league, and LASC is a gem. I mean, the Bank of California or BMO Stadium, whatever you call it, is a gem. I mean, the way they set up their their whole uh, tailgate in the front park area where they can have a whole bunch of booths set up, a whole bunch of basically a party going on before the game, and everybody has a great time before the game. They walk in, and it's just jam-packed full of luxury seating. You get celebrities there all the time. So in a sense, he's not wrong that LAFC and Austin FC have things to make their stadiums feel like they're superior. But at the end of the day, he's the one that designed the stadium. And, and if he didn't have the foresight, you know, eight years ago or to, to make sure that this is a, a stadium that can stay up to date in the Bay Area and, and stay up to date with all the other clubs in, in the league, that, that that falls on him. So a little odd to see him come out with those comments. And, and to be honest with you guys, imagine if you're PayPal, right? You just sign a 10-year deal with the, with the stadium naming rights, and, and then the owner comes out saying, yeah, the stadium's not up to par. Imagine being, imagine being the next potential investor. You're not, you're not going to be too, too happy with that. Absolutely, and that's the problem I'm having with him right now. As you said, he designed the stadium. I mean, you know, he could have had people come in to give a better design to say, well, I want to have this amenity or that amenity. I mean, look, I'm I'm grateful enough that where Red Bull Arena is in Harrison, New Jersey, it's not only near local transportation with the PATH train going to New York City, New Jersey Transit as well with the train and Amtrak, um, and they can have these little events before the game on the main road in front. Right. They have a, um, right. you know, they, they have a beer garden uh, outside of the north end of Red Bull Arena. I mean, you know, when I'm seeing, and I always go to Google Maps when I want to look at the area. I mean, obviously, there is Caltrain Station. is also an Amtrak station for the Santa Clara station. I mean, they, in my in my opinion, you know, they make a station there that you can also, you know, walk over underneath and then, you know, have a tunnel. And they also have their training facility at the, at the same place. Can't they build something near the railroad tracks for fans to have something before the game? Yes, yes and no. But what, what Fisher has is he has a whole bunch of corporate buildings there that he rents out to big companies. I mean, Roku and Yahoo are next door. And the the appeal of, of renting those out is you're right next to a professional sports team. So these tech companies, they want to be close to amenities. So they're, so they're, at least their employees feel like they, they have something to do on Friday nights or Saturday nights and, and they can go to the stadium. Um, but also, yes, they could have built something in front, but inside of the stadium is not too bad either. They have a big grass area behind the largest bar. So it just, I it's it's more like with the Quake Stadium and the Quake situation, the game starts and maybe two hours ahead of time people start going in, but it's a little different when it's on the outside. I feel like if you can have people five or six hours before the game, it's just a different atmosphere. I mean, people are itching to start to cheer for their team, and they just instantly get louder, right? So it, it was something that possibly could have been done a little – planned a little better, but – I can't really opinionate on when the stadium was made because I wasn't reporting back then. So it just, but he's not wrong about it being a little outdated. That's for sure. But they, they definitely could build something. It just would be too far away from the stadium since they have all the corporate buildings there already. 
No, very true. And but at the same time, uh, I mean, I'm not saying to get rid of the bar, obviously. I mean, look, I, I'm a type of guy that likes some quirkiness to some of these stadiums, obviously, whether it be on the outside or on the inside. I mean, I like Dick's Sporting Goods Park where the clubhouse is like, I guess, in the north end and everyone's walking out to the pitch to get ready for the match. I love the bar um, in that northern end as well. But I mean, couldn't they find a way to add more seats next to the bar? I'm not saying you you should get rid of the grassy knoll, but, you know, maybe build some more seats in that area to bring in more people of some sort. Yeah, and this is the argument I always talk about. Um, how do you make people sit in their seats? Because, to be honest, a lot that, that area is so much fun. The largest bar in, in Northern California, or at the time it was, it's just it's a lot of fun that you don't want to go sit down. And, unfortunately, a couple beers in, yeah, maybe you cheer here and there for the goals, but you're not – truly, truly into the game if you're just dancing and then and at the bars, you know, having a good time with your buddies and, and that's that's the obstacle. Now, can you build seats there? Yes, but but I've heard through the grapevine that a lot of things had to do with the neighborhood not wanting it to be too big of a stadium because they were worried about concerts being played there. Um, they were worried about more traffic to the area. Um, also, if they wanted to have more seats, they would definitely have to add an exit. Um, you can't just add new seats to this because it only has two exits, and I believe there was a fire marshal report saying that it would be a fire hazard if they wanted to add capacity. But also another thing is that the Quakes have to worry about is they're not selling out already. So would it be the smartest move to you know raise capacity? It, it, it depends. It's like it's almost like what came first, the chicken or the egg, right? What's the first problem? Is the team not good enough to field a full stadium, or is the stadium not good enough to to make the atmosphere good enough to field a good team? Right. So it just it's truly it, it, it needs a little bit of work. That's for sure. That's very true. Very true. And look, I mean, you know, it's an eight-year stadium, like we've already said. I mean, is there anywhere in the San Jose area where, if they do want to build a new stadium, I'm not, I'm not advocating for that. I think PayPal Park is fine where it is. That's just my personal opinion, but. If there is a, a moment where they they do want to move and, and build a brand new stadium somewhere in the San Jose area, I mean, you know, it's not a bad place to be next to the airport, that's for sure. But where do you think uh, it would be, uh, you know, um, logical to if they do build a brand new stadium for the earthquakes, where do you think they would put it? Yeah, as as you know, and as a lot of people know, you know, land in the Bay Area is not cheap, right? It's, it's extremely hard to get a big area to build a stadium. But um, the mayor of San Francisco was saying that now because the mall in San Francisco is a lot of companies are pulling out of this big mall um, in downtown San Francisco that she proposed that maybe we should build a soccer stadium there. So if 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 the Quakes build a new stadium anywhere, I think – it's going to be an SF. And, and this is a very controversial take, but I feel like it's going to be extremely hard to find some sort of, of land that's available in the Bay Area, in a good area, um, to build another stadium. But if the mayor is proposing a stadium being built, maybe we could talk about some, some money going into the stadium from the city. Because if you know the politics of San Francisco, right now a lot of companies are pulling out the retail stores in San Francisco. So it's something where, you know, you fill a lot of those vacant, basically stores, and you put a stadium there. You 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 in, 
I guess you just increase the value of that area by adding a stadium and a team, and, and it helps out all the local businesses in the area. So I truly don't think another stadium would be in San Jose. If anything, if if we see the Quakes move, I think we see a whole new rebrand as well. I think we see a lot of changes. And, and that's why, I don't know, I don't think Fisher is the type to do that in this area. I think with those comments, I think, I, it just those comments were weird, were really weird ones. So it just it it, it plays a lot of questions for Quakes fans and San, say, you know Bay Area soccer fans. I mean, don't get me wrong. I would love to see that happen in San Francisco, having a proper soccer stadium in downtown San Francisco. I mean, that's the biggest coup out of you know all the four major sports, well, five major sports leagues now. I'm counting MLS as well, but um, that would be a big coup for San Francisco to get a professional soccer stadium in the heart of the city because that is like you know, I mean, you know, where the Giants are. Uh, where uh, Oracle Park is, that was fantastic. Obviously, where the Warriors are now at Chase Arena. If they can have a professional soccer stadium in the heart of downtown San Francisco, I mean, I would be, you know, over the moon. I would like it to be, you know, an, uh, you know, a, a, a San Francisco team. I'm not saying San Francisco City. But something like right. that to be right. doing, uh, you know, being the tenant uh, or an expansion side to come in there and not have the earthquakes move out of San Jose. Yeah, and it, 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 this is the problem the Quakes have had ever since their start in 1974, right? The NASL wanted them to be SF team, but in, in all reality, they didn't want to be SF teams. They wanted to be the blue-collar team in San Jose for all the workers and all the all the – Middle class people that lived in San Jose, so it's it's going to be tough. Um, the only way I see San Jose moving to SF is if Fisher takes another team to Vegas, and it's not the baseball team, right? And who knows if he's trying to do that or or if he sees it as an investment. Maybe we see another Columbus um, Austin situation where he gets to take the new team to the new market, and then new investors come into the area. Um, and, and when that happens, everything's fair game, right? I mean, if a new investor comes into this area, treats it like a global soccer team, this team should definitely be in San Francisco if that's the case. And once you're in San Francisco, everything changes. You, you, you get a chance to sign bigger stars. Everybody knows where you're located in the world. So it's a lot of things coming for Quakes fans if those things happen. Very true, and uh, let's see what happens uh, moving forward. Before I let you go, uh, of course, uh, I know you're doing your soccer uh, magazine work, and I believe you just posted your first edition of the magazine, or you're a part of it. Uh, please inform us of what uh, your first uh, article is and your first magazine issue is so we all know what to look for. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, so my magazine is Footwork. Uh, it's the magazine that we kind of uh, take a second to look at some, um, some MLS superstars or MLS stars and some some different kind of aspects of the year of soccer that we're having. And recently I, I did a little spread on Henny Mukhtar, and then we had another spread done on Dennis Bawanga. So just, just kind of deeper diving into the seasons they're having and, and what they mean to the sport in the United States. So, um, yeah, you can find that. We're, we're going to be able to possibly put one together in a physical copy, but still all online right now. But, yeah, it's, it's having a great success, and I do want to thank you for having me on originally to talk about that magazine. 
because it's been only up from there. So, I yeah, it's been a great time and a lot of fun. Oh, I bet it has been, and it's been great to uh, watch your progress on social media, especially on X, because it does mark the spot. Uh, I know, cheap, <laughs> cheap, cheap laugh, cheap laugh. I can't help it. But anyway, uh, no, listen, uh, look, I, I want to say you know, you've been doing a great job uh, for a while now, uh, you know, just not just for the sport in the uh, Bay Area and the San uh, in San Francisco, but, you know, you're doing a great job with everything in the sport in the country, so – uh, just want to support your uh, your endeavor, and hopefully the Footwork magazine will continue to be successful for you and your staff. Thank you so much, and I appreciate the time for having me on, and I would love to be on whenever you, whenever you need me. All right. Thank you very much, Fabian, and have a good night, and thank you once again. Take care. Pleasure. Take care. Thank you. Fabian Reinkel, uh, Area Sportsnet in the – San Francisco, San Jose Bay Area, talking about the situation with the San Jose Earthquake Stadium by their owner, John Fisher. As, uh, you know, look, he designed the stadium. That's the land you got it in. And I know it's by the airport, but still, though, um, I mean, I personally don't have a problem with it. I think it, it in this in this sport, in this country, we should be grateful enough that we have stadiums made for the game. I know we have multi-purpose stadiums made for American football, soccer, but all I can say is, is that I'm just happy that they have a stadium that they can call their own and they don't have to worry about anything else. My next guest, she is a first-time guest on my show. She is the radio analyst for Charlotte FC on WFNZ. I hope I pronounced her last name correctly. She can correct me, please, if, I, if you can. Miss Jessica Charman, is it? You nailed it. You nailed it. So many Americans go yes. with this show, but I'm, very, I'm proud of you for hitting the hard show. Very nicely done. Ah, thank you very much. So what do I win? Good reward I'll, to get us started. That's with the best thing ever. <laughs> well, Jessica, thank you very much for joining me tonight, and uh, welcome to the show. Uh, two years in, Charlotte FC uh, playing matches in the Queen City at uh, the Bank of America Stadium. What has it been for you to see this club being a part of that community and the amazing nights of football being played there? Yeah, I think firstly, it's so special when you're able to be a club from the very start, right? Not many people can say that they were there from the first game and have been present to commentate every single game in the club's history so far. That's a really special individual standpoint. I think that anyone that sort of looked at Charlotte from afar has had the ability to admire what they've done in terms of cultivating an incredible crowd. You obviously saw that they held the attendance record for a very long time until the LA teams came in and took that away. But They've managed to really find themselves embraced by the city. I think that's a mark to how the Carolinas were desperate for an MLS team for a very long time. Unfortunately, as I'm sure we'll dig into, it hasn't felt like the on-the-field antics have maybe mirrored with what they've been able to do in terms of an atmosphere and a crowd standpoint. But thankfully, despite the hard times, and I know it's two years in, you can't really call it hard times in terms of the grand scheme of things, but despite maybe not having the results that the fan base would like, they've stuck around, which is always an incredible testament to people. 
Absolutely. Um, what has Christian Latanzio done that was forcing management to sack Miguel Angel Ramirez from that inaugural season in the middle of that year last year? Yeah, I think there was a lot of uh, off-the-field issues with Miguel Angel Ramirez. A lot of it stemmed more from kind of player management. I think there's a lot of people that would say that Miguel knew soccer. There was no way when you listened to him talk in press conferences, when you heard him talk about his soccer ideology, he definitely knew the game. But knowing the game of soccer doesn't make you a good coach, right? There's so many attributes you need to have in a good coach. You need to be a very good man manager. You need to be able to cultivate relationships. And I think that's an area of the game that Latanto is extremely good at. He's very good at building relationships. He's very good at building trust with his players. You can see there seems to be a very good level of relationship between them. Do I think Latanto has done the best job in terms of the points? No, this is a side that, you know, has been very vocal about extremely high ambitions. You heard this team talk about in year one, saying they wanted to host a home playoff. We all know how that went. Well, now we're in year two, and it's still within reach of playoffs, but there's still some issues there. And I think the Latangio style of play is a very good style of play in terms of the beautiful game. But does the beautiful game always work in MLS? I'm not 100% sure about that, particularly when you are capped with all of the different rules that everyone that follows MLS knows come with roster compliance. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that's the biggest sticking point right now with MLS. I mean, I think everyone else is ahead of the league. Um, as I'm saying, you know, in my uh, monologue, uh, all the clubs and their academies, they're at a 2.0, 3.0 level, maybe even 4.0. And MLS is stuck in the 1.0 with all these roster rules and compliances that are hampering, I think, could become a better successful league if they would just either relax them or just wipe them out completely because I think it's holding this league back. Yeah, I would say that part of me enjoys the parity to an extent, but I think parity can be helped without it being quite so much of a strict way, right? Whether it be, and you've mm -hmm. heard the rumors, I'm sure, of adding a fourth designated player spot or increasing the finance. I think the biggest issue is, unless you're really in MLS circle, and I don't claim to know every in and out, the rules are so dang complicated that unless you're dealing with it on a day-to-day -day basis, not everyone understands it. And I think there's a lot of people that come over to be involved with the league that don't even know it. And that, to me, strikes it as too complicated. If you have to read an entire textbook to get up to date with the different rules and regulations, then I will touch on the academy. So I do think that with the growth of the academy system and now with MLS Next Pro, MLS is closing that gap with Europe in terms of the player developmental structure, and that can only be a good thing. We're seeing it in Charlotte. I can see firsthand of the way that they're able to give academy players first-team football. They're able to push people up that were maybe rookies into the MLS Next Pro level and then get them ready for MLS, and I think that is a positive sign. I'm not a Euro snob that thinks everything should be done the way that it is in Europe, but let's be honest, the way that Europe and even South America is able to cultivate their young talent and get them ready for first team football is something that MLS can benefit from learning from. And I think they're doing a better job with that with the creation of MLS Next Pro. I absolutely agree with you 100% on that. Let's talk about this team right now. Um, ben Bender, ever since he came on in the inaugural season last year, he's been basically on a tear. Not a so many goals this year. He's got three at the moment. But what has he been for Charlotte since coming on uh, last season and going into this year? Yeah, I think he's a fan favorite just because of the story. Anytime you get a draft pick that's being successful, you've got people rooting for him. He's a good kid. He's young. 
he still has that sort of squeaky voice where you forget he's a grown man going into it, which I think makes him more endearing to people. He's an exciting player. There's no doubt he's extremely technical. He's got a really good eye for goal. You talk about those three goals, but they've been really good level finishes. The issue with Charlotte FC is no one's scoring many goals, which is kind of why they're in the position that they're in. And Ben Bender has been a mature player that's brought to the level. I think that he's had issues with consistency, which is going to be very common in players that are only in their second year of professional season. You look back at number one draft picks and not many of them take it in their stride instantly. There's just a few that are doing it. You look at Duncan Maguire, a draft pick that's done really well with Orlando City, but other than him, there's not too many standout names that pop to my head right away. And I think Ben Bender is a quality player. I don't think he's the finished product right now, but you don't expect him to be. And the fact that, I don't know, uh, he picked up a slight injury to his knee and he's probably going to be out for the remainder of the games for the Charlotte FC team is going to be problematic because even if he's not starting, he's a great creative player to have come off the bench and he's someone that you can always trust to finish chances when he's given them. And, of course, uh, Carol Swiderski leading the club with nine goals. Um, what has he been so far for this club, even though, obviously, it's not been going well this year, but, you know, nine goals is nothing to sneeze at. He's been converting chances all the time. Yeah, he's a player that's had to put his club on his shoulders, honestly. It's been tough for him because Charlotte's other designated players, and Zekopedi was out injured for a long time. Camille Jozbiak, his fellow Polishman, has just struggled to get to the rhythm, has also had some niggly injuries. It's basically been like Charlotte's had to play with one designated player for long quarters of the season. I know there's a lot of fans of other teams that will say, well, boo-hoo, that happens to a lot of squads, but it was always tough for Charlotte FC, and I think Fiderski's really had to step up and show that he is the most versatile player that he can be. He's played on the wing. He's played as the number 10. He's played as the number nine. And wherever he plays, he gets 110% workload. There are rumors surrounding, and there have been rumors circling about how he wants to go back to Europe now, which, you know, he is a Polish national team player. During the international break, he has to go back to Poland, and he plays 10, 15 minutes here or there. That's a long journey. Anyone that's done that cross-continental flight will know that's exhausting to be a part of, particularly when you're not playing minutes. So, I think that Karol Swiderski has been this team in terms of goals. He's been the team, the, the player rather that this team has had to rely on the most. And it's going to be some really big shoes to fill if this is his last season with Charlotte FC. So we'll have to keep our fingers crossed that he has a change of heart or that there's not the bid that Charlotte FC can't say no to coming in in, in the off season. Exactly. I agree with you there. What has been the biggest pet peeve right now that, you know, things have not, gone their way what have you seen from your vantage point that says you know charlotte needs to be better at certain moments in the match where they can get the three points and maybe get on a run and hopefully get back into a playoff position yeah i mean the stat that stands out to me is that charlotte's dropped 23 points from winning positions and that's just staggering when you think about it even if they manage to keep half of those points in winning positions you're comfortably under or over the playoff line rather and the issue with that's been a lot of concentration and not being able to put the game to bed kind of like you say some of that comes from not scoring enough goals let's be honest you have to put some pressure on your forward line they haven't been clinical enough in recent games they've struggled to even get shots on target which is not a great sign in the push where you know it's must win all or nothing it's Concerning to me, the individual errors that we've seen leading to goals, it feels like lack of concentration in moments and almost like a mentality switch for this side where, let's be honest, players are human. If you've conceded late goals often, if you have 
drop points from winning positions on multiple different games in a row, you start to have that in the back of your mind as a player. And I actually think we're starting to see that on the pitch in moments where the guys are playing with more pressure than maybe they need to. So I think that's going to be the point that haunts fans at the moment, the fact that you've dropped 23 points from winning positions. And even you could add drawing positions into that. You saw them against New England Revolution just this weekend. You tie back the game. One and a half minutes later, you give New England Revolution the eventual winning goal. That's just not a, a way to be successful as a side. You have to be able to put games to bed and hold on to results. Very true there as well. What do you think is going to be the game plan for Zoran Kernetta, the sporting director of the club? I mean, do you think this is going to be a tall task to get into next year? I mean, how long of a – I don't want to say I think his position's in jeopardy, but in your mind, what do you think he needs to do for this upcoming off season to put Charlotte into the top end of the Eastern Conference for 2024? Yeah, I think – for Zoran right now, he's still hoping that this season is alive. Mathematically, Charlotte's not dead if they're able to win out because they did have those uh, extra games based on the fact that their Inter-Miami games had to be rescheduled. They have four games left on the season. So if they're able to make that push into the eight and nine positions, I think Zoran will be feeling a little bit more comfortable because of, as I talked about, the big promises that were made for getting a playoff berth. If you don't make playoffs for the first or the first two seasons in club history, and we saw it with FC Cincinnati and the swing around that they've done, I think a lot of people are looking at FC Cincinnati now as the, you know, if you face hardship, you can overcome and you can have a remarkable season like they have in Cincinnati. And I think Zoran Kaneda is going to be looking at that as kind of a, a pivotal role model. What did Cincinnati do? I mean, look how good Acosta is, right? Charlotte FC needs a Lucho Acosta. I'm not saying that you steal him, but you need designated players that are really going to make a difference. And I talked about Karis Widerski. Is he going out the door? If he is, you have got to replace him with an elite-level player. It has to be someone that's going to bring you those double-digit goals and assists that Charlotte hasn't been able to have. There are other designated players in Enzo Capetti, the Argentine. Haven't had enough time to see what he can do fully, but is he happy? Not 100% sure. And then you've got Camille Juziak, a designated player that's barely getting minutes off the bench. Is that where you need your designated players? Unfortunately, as we talked about earlier, in a league which puts so much emphasis on three-player positions, you have to nail those to keep in the game. And I think that's going to be in front of Zoran Kaneza's mind. I think Charlotte's done a good job of compartmental pieces. You look at the likes of Ashley Westwood, Scott Arfield, who, you know, veterans of big teams overseas. They're doing okay. Those are good players to attract. You've got Adelson Melander, who's one of the best young defenders I think that a lot of the MLS experts ranked him in their U22 initiative players. Like, he's a fantastic product. But if your designated players don't hit, doesn't really matter how good the other players on your roster are. You're not going to be able to compete to the same level. Absolutely. If we can talk about you for a moment, if you don't mind, did you uh, play uh, at university back in England or were you attending an American school for uh, for women's football? Yeah. Yeah, I came over here and had a scholarship. I played Division uh, Division Two soccer, was submitted with my eligibility. So that was a great uh, experience to play here, managed to have a full ride to college. So no student debt coming out of it. And that's actually where I ended up, you know, falling in love with commentary. I would commentate the men's games and play my women's game and ended up getting really good at it and eventually managed to get this gig. So it's been a pretty cool experience. And I think that's the thing that's so interesting from my perspective. As someone that's benefited so much from the collegiate system, I'm not trying to eradicate it in any shape or form, but I do think that the college system isn't the best pathway to professional sports. I think it can be an option for some players that 
maybe peak late, but there should be a pathway, and we're seeing it now with the academies and MLS Next Pro, that players are able to go professional earlier, and I'm glad that the U.S. is going down that route as well. And finally, how happy were you how England performed in this past Women's World Cup? Happy, but you know what they say, isn't second the first loser, right? I think I was very happy with everything until the final, but everything that's happened with Spain since then has been a really remarkable eye-opening experience to see the world come together and support the Spanish national team. So if that was something that had to happen, England getting defeated for eyes to be turned on the women's game even more than before, then it could only be a positive thing. But I do think that World Cup was the best women's World Cup in ever. It was an incredible tournament, and I was really glad to see so many of the small nations as well thriving. Sorry about the U.S., but, you know, that was, that, was a tough, that was a tough pill to swallow for a lot of Americans, I think. No, it was, but I will say this, though. You know, I'm very excited and I'm very happy to see the women's game being more competitive than it has been in the past. Because, don't get me wrong, it's great that the U.S. women were dominant. In, in our era or in our time, it was great to see them. I mean, let's be honest. It was, at, it was always the United States, China, and Norway. And now that more countries are taking the women's game more seriously, I'm very happy to see the women's game growing and having more viable um, opponents and more viable women's national teams showing us that you can play this game and that you are just as dominant and dangerous as the men are. Yeah, and it's only going to make it better, right? I think it's one of those things that competition breeds success. The U.S. had kind of a wake-up call about what the rest of the world was doing now, and they're going to make sure that they're prepared for the Olympics, that they're prepared for the next World Cup, because, uh, you know, there's a reason why the U.S. were a powerhouse, but right now other nations are perhaps investing even more in their domestic game and development. So this was an incredible World Cup, and I think this is a turning point for the women's game, you know, the the possibilities are endless right now for the women's game which is always good to be a part of they absolutely are jessica thank you so much for your time i really truly appreciate it that you came on and anytime you want to come back on to talk about charlotte fc or even the women's national team please the invitation is automatic it's open to you my dear thanks so much it was a pleasure have a great rest of your show thank you you too that's jessica charman the radio analyst of Charlotte FC as she joins me to talk about Charlotte FC's season so far and what they've been doing at this point in time. Uh, let's now quickly recap second round U.S. Open Cup qualifying scores for the amateurs. And here we go. Um, let's start off with the East. And once again, it is VE. Vern Ingung Erzgeberg defeating the Philadelphia Heritage 3-0. And a couple of blowouts out of nowhere. Steel Pulse FC destroying Villarreal FC Virginia 13-2. How the heck did that happen? Valhalla FC defeating the Chicago Strikers 2-0. Uh, Yins United defeating Arlington VA Virginia 3-2. South Carolina United Heat defeating Mint Hill FC 6-1. Another blowout, Leg A's, AZ World FC defeating Royal Palm Soccer Club 8-1. Florida Premier FC defeating Clearwater Chargers 4-0. The Orlando FC Wolves fell to Harbor City FC 3 goals to 1. City Soccer FC of Florida defeating Hodler at Miami 3-2. Chicago House back on the road to get to Open Cup 
opening round, defeating their neighbors in Chicago, Wisloka 2-1. Edgewater Castle FC defeating Berber City FC 2-1. Kalanji Profile defeating Terminus FC 4-0. Majestic Soccer Club blowing out North Georgia United 6-1. Brockton FC defeating FC Omens 3-0. The Philadelphia Ukrainian Nationals defeating Colonial SC 3-1. A 6-0 victory by the United German Hung- United German Hungarians over Real Central Real Central New Jersey 6-0 as I said. The Sahara Gunners edging IASC Boom in Western New York 2-1 for that battle. FC Birmingham Falls to the Tennessee Tempo to uh, excuse me 4-1. Miami Soccer Academy defeating Florida Brothers by final of two goals to one. It would be C.D. Phelan's after a 2-2 draw with Boston Street FC in regulation and extra time. They would be the only match to go into penalties, and they would edge Boston Street FC to advance into the next round. New Jersey Alliance defeating SC Vistula Garfield 2-0. CFL Gosa destroying Deportivo Lake Mary 8-0. for Miami United over Soccer Paradise FC. The New York Renegades out in Long Island defeating Zum Schneider FC 0 one the New York Pancyprian Freedoms defeating and edging Lansdowne Yonkers 2-1 to me. Even though the Pancyprian Freedoms are, the, are a former champion of the Open Cup, to me, that's an upset. 5-0, Christos FC defeating the Agen Hawks. And Nova FC, Northern Virginia, defeating DC FC four goals to one. And in the West... Foro FC defeating 10-15 FC 2-0. Temecula FC defeating Moretta Soccer Academy 4-0. Santa Monica Surf defeating Trojans FC 7-1. And yes, these are college kids representing the school. There is no men's team in college soccer at that university. Inter San Francisco defeating Olympic Club 4-1. Valley 559 defeating Coronado Athletic Club 2-1. Sporting Arizona FC defeating SC Union Maricopa 2-1. Provo Athletic Club uh, falling to FC Denver 3-2. Austin Thunder defeating Daggers Central Texas 4-1. 2-0 to Escondido FC over the Rebel Soccer Club. Sharktopus Football Club defeating Holak FC 2-1. FC Folsom defeating UC Davis Club 2-1. Irvine Zeta destroying Capo FC 6-0. Azteca FC defeating Harpo's FC 2-1. Athletic Katie in a seven-goal thriller edging Houston FC 4-3. And because Austin Longhorns forfeited their second-round qualifying match, Alamo City FC automatically advances to the third round of the qualification matches of the U.S. Open Cup. Now, O'Shea's FC is currently, well, I believe it's already over by now, uh, Parkland Soccer Club. And if I can take a quick peek from the cup.us's 
Twitter slash X page. Let us see what the result is. And as we take a look here, it looks like there are currently uh, there were well, it looks like there was an issue at first, and they're 25 minutes late, so probably the match is still going on. And currently, nil-nil um, is the current scoreline between both O'Shea's FC and Parkland Soccer Club. So if we don't get a result tonight, I'll let everyone know in next week's show what the result will be between O'Shea's Irish Pub uh, FC and Parkland Soccer Club if we do not get a result tonight here, uh, whatever is left on the show. And finally, the New York Red Bulls, as they fell to the Chicago Fire by a final of a goal to nil, down 10 men. You know, once again, it, it, this was a hard pill to swallow. Once again, you're dominating the Chicago Fire. And you're dominating the opponent. They have put nothing positive on the board. Stats-wise. No shots on goal. No shots, period. No corners. Red Bull is attacking. They are dominating the opening 45. They get into the locker room to get ready for the second half. And then when the second half begins, everything looks fine until Hassan Nadam pulls off two terrible tackles that becomes yellow cards on both of them, then red from the 49th minute to the 62nd minute. And the Red Bulls are down to 10 men as Hassan Nadam is sent off. And then two minutes later, it is a goal by the Chicago Fire on another set piece that apparently this club just cannot defend at all. They cannot defend set pieces. They fell asleep once again. Kutsis of Chicago finds a way to bury that ball in a match where it looked like the Fire were getting outrunned. They were getting just nothing coming their way the Red Bulls were dominating. They, they did score a goal. It got taken away all because Amaya, who did play the ball first, afterwards slid into the defender and they was called for the foul and the John Tolkien goal got wiped off the board. And then once again, they're playing catch up. They're playing from behind. They're chasing the game. You thought maybe they had a chance late in second half stoppage time to pull in an equalizer. Unfortunately, hit the crossbar and out. And the Chicago Fire are now in a position where they can take advantage of maybe leapfrogging into a playoff position. And yes, there are three matches remaining, but still, though, once again, they just cannot get over the hump. Or they're dominating, and once again, the first shot on goal for the opposition becomes a goal-scoring moment against the Red Bulls. 
I'm sorry. I know there's still three games left. And they may come out of nowhere with a victory over Cincinnati out of the blue. I don't see it. I think this consecutive clinching the playoff streak is about to end. And it's going to end in 2023. It's a shame. I don't want to see that happen, obviously. But if we're going to be honest with ourselves here, even if they do get a miracle and they do clinch a playoff spot, what's the point? They're going to get eliminated in the uh, wild card round anyway. I mean, I'm not saying they should give up. I'm not saying that at all. But the truth of the matter is this. It's going to be a tough task to get any form of points in Cincinnati. But if they can pull off a miracle, it would be the biggest miracle ever. So until we see what's going to happen there, unfortunately, it's just ridiculous. And I I really – I'm sorry to say it. I I just don't see them making the playoffs. I really don't. I don't want to say it, but the truth is we got to be honest. Um, I hope they prove me wrong. I want to be proven wrong. But the truth is this is a tougher hill to climb now with three matches remaining because they're going to need a lot of luck now from multiple teams ahead of them to drop down from that eighth and ninth spot. We'll see what happens there. Outside of that, I want to thank my guests tonight. I want to thank Fabian Renkel from Area Area Sportsnet, the representing the Bay Area in covering soccer, and the Charlotte FC radio analyst, Miss Jessica Charman, joining me tonight, uh, being on the show. My name is Daniel Feuerstein. Join me this coming Friday night. I'll be joined by both of my colleagues at Beyond the 90, Carter Krishnire and Jonathan Starling, as we talk about the issues going on at Club De Leon in Florida, as well as the issues with NISA as a whole. Once again, my name is Daniel Feuerstein. Thank you, for, for, thank you very much for listening to me tonight. And as always, please enjoy your football. Thank you. Take care. So long and bye-bye for now.